Welcome to this week's episode of The Modern Good. I'm your host, Busy Gold. Conscious construction starts right now. everybody, welcome to another episode of The Modern Good. I'm here with Dr. Laura Sanger. Dr. Laura Sanger is a clinical psychologist, author of The Roots of the Federal Reserve, and a small business owner. Her current focus is awakening people to the spiritual battle at hand and the psychological warfare of the globalist agenda. My cup of tea. Dr. Sanger has been involved in spiritual mapping for the past 25 years. She is passionate about seeing individuals, people, groups, regions, and nations set free from enslavement. This led her to write The Roots of the Federal Reserve, Tracing the Nephilim from Noah to the U.S. Dollar, an investigative journey through time using spiritual mapping concepts to uncover the deep layers of defilement within our monetary system. Dr. Laura, welcome to the show. It is an absolute honor to have you on as a guest. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I've been following your work for about six months. Absolutely love everything that you teach about. And I know a lot of our listeners here have been a part of my journey of how God has uncovered or guided my eyes to certain pieces of information. And I love how often when I hear you speak on interviews, you talk about how God has a very specific timing for when something is to be revealed or uncovered. And it sounds like a lot of that has been part of your journey. So I would love for you to share with our listeners what your journey into some of this work has looked like and how God led you kind of from, let's say, like early 20s on into the journey that you're on now. Well, I kind of like you, I absolutely love scavenger hunts. And so the Holy Spirit knows that about me. And so he will lead me on these scavenger hunts and just lay clues along the way. So I... You know, in my, let's see, in my 20s, I was in graduate school. So by profession, I'm a psychologist. And um, I was, I attended Fuller Theological Seminary in my 20s. And that was, it just had a profound impact on who I was as a person. Um, but I would have to say, um, I think it all started back when I was in undergraduate. I went to UC San Diego and I was part of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and they had a spring retreat on Catalina Island. So who doesn't want to spend spring retreat on an island in the Pacific, right? So I signed up right away, and um, I signed up for what was called the Mark Study, and that really unfolded um, scripture to me. We spent nearly eight hours a day in this tiny little cabin at the, the shoreline of the ocean. So here's the Pacific Back then, I loved to lay out in the sun. I loved to be in the ocean. Here I was, spring break, spending eight hours a day in this tiny little cabin, but digging into the Word of God. And it was in a manuscript study, which means there was no chapter or verses. We just had it on an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper, the first part of the Gospel of Mark. And the scripture came alive to me. And I realized that there are treasures within the word of God that if you begin to dig and dig, you realize that the treasures have no end. And so that mm -hmm. really, when I was, I think I was probably, I was 21 actually at that point in time, um, that really started the foundation for me and learning how to not only dig into scripture, 
But at that same time, I was working at the VA Medical Center in La Jolla, California, doing research in the area of schizophrenia. And so mm-hmm. here I had this academic research aspect to me, but then I had this biblical research aspect and they just came together. And, you know, really since 1989, um, at that point in time in my life, I've been involved in some level of research. And that's why, you know, I bring this skill set along with you know, this expertise in spiritual mapping to really offer a unique perspective on the roots of the Federal Reserve. And I have to say, you know, writing this book, um, it it really was an adventure. In fact, I never intended to write a book on the Federal Reserve. You know, I'm a psychologist. I am not an expert on our monetary system. But in 2014, the Lord just kept nudging me um, to write a spiritual mapping prayer brief on the Federal Reserve. And so I did. Um, and I, I don't know, have, are you familiar with what spiritual mapping is? Sometimes audiences aren't familiar with what that is. I know my audience that is into a lot of my Christian spirituality work is, but I think as a broad audience follows this podcast, I would love for you to give your definition. Yeah, so spiritual mapping essentially is, you know, gathering research on the physical, social, and spiritual pulse of like a people group, a city, a community, an institution, whatever it is the focus of that mapping assignment is. And it involves digging through history to really uncover Mm -hmm. these ancient roots of defilement. And so in the spiritual mapping work that we do, there's three components to it. So there's reconnaissance, there's research, and then there's informed intercession. So with the reconnaissance, what we do is we'll send teams of people out onto the land to discern, you know, what's happened on the land. And a biblical example of that is when Moses sent the 12 spies into the land of Canaan, or when Joshua sent the two spies into the land of Jericho. And so what we do is we have a team of people, you know, we go out onto the land, and these are people that are gifted in areas of discernment, you know, so they they're able to hear the voice of the Lord. They're able to see into the spiritual realm. Um, We're able to feel what the land is communicating, like what's happened on the land before. And we just take notes and then we pair that with a research component, which involves, you know, we'll dig through historical documents, we'll um, obtain demographic data. We even find, you know, interviewing local people to get their take on what's happened in the community. And then Also, you know, looking through old newspaper articles can be incredibly insightful. And so we take all of that information and we pair it together and we write up a spiritual mapping prayer brief that has these targeted prayer strategies so that we can strike at the root of the issue and inform intercession. And what we found is that, you know, there's four types of iniquity that can defile the land and establish strongholds. And that is uh, sexual perversion idolatry, broken covenants, and bloodshed. And so we want to identify, have these things happened on the land? Because whenever there's a stronghold over the land, it impacts the people that live there, whether they know it exists or not. And so we want to equip intercessors, you know, those people that go and pray, to be able to break off the curses that are attached to the land, you know, to cleanse the land, to release the king's decrees and that full measure of blessing that God's intended. And so... Um, You know, really, when you think about it, the ultimate goal of spiritual mapping is to help people, first of all, be set free from bondages, but also Mm -hmm. to help them to step into the fullness of what God has for them. So anyways, that's that's kind of a summary of spiritual mapping. So when I wrote this spiritual mapping prayer brief in 2014 on the Federal Reserve, you know, I gathered a couple intercessors. 
and we prayed, you know, through the targeted prayer strategies that I had identified, but I, and I thought my assignment was done. I'm one of those people that absolutely loves to learn. I've got this naturally inquisitive mind, you know, so I'm always formulating research questions. And anyways, I thought, you know, that intercessory assignment was done with, with regards to the Federal Reserve, but probably over like another year and a half or so, I just kept getting this nudge from the Holy Spirit that I wasn't done. And so in 2016, I picked it back up and I began researching and writing. But I have to tell you like the, the first year, first of all, I didn't tell anyone what I was doing. I was just doing it in my spare time. And the first year, I really didn't know what it was I was writing. I'm like, Lord, this is way too long for a spiritual mapping prayer brief. What am I doing? And it wasn't until 2017 that he kind of clued me in that he was having me write a book. And so I spent four years researching and writing the roots of the Federal Reserve. And I, I wrote it in what I call real time, um, which means, you know, in chapter five, I remember this specifically, it's one of my favorite chapters. But when I was writing chapter five, I literally had no idea like the twists and turns this investigative journey would take. I didn't even know First of all, if anyone would read my book, if, um, if it would make sense in the end, like if the dots would connect, it was this act of obedience. You know, each day I'd wake up and because I like scavenger hunts, you know, I was totally mm -hmm. en enthralled by it. And I'd wake up, I'm like, okay, Lord, you know, what are we going to do today? What are you going to show me? Where are you going to lead me? And so the research I do for this book, you know, it spans from the dawn of humanity to our current day. And I identify this Nephilim agenda that has defiled our monetary system and practically every institution in our land. And so, you know, I trace this from the days of Noah to our current day and this debt enslavement system we call the Federal Reserve. And I'm always grateful, you know, to speak to new audiences because I know that the Lord, you know, since the book was published in November of 2020, he's called me to walk in Ephesians 5.11, which says, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, mm -hmm. but rather expose them. So I'm grateful to be, um, you know, on your show and speaking to new audiences. Yeah, we're so happy that you're here. And exactly what you just described happens to be the Sunday service that I gave a couple weeks ago that was called X Marks the Spot. And I was sharing how my walk with the Lord has very much been a scavenger hunt or a treasure hunt. And ultimately, to be obedient, we can't always know where we're going because often our human stubbornness or our own fear will kick in and then God can't effectively lead us. So I love that you've been obedient. And honestly, even as you were telling that story, I'm like, well, what if he told you that you were going to write this book? Would your human kick in and be like, well, I'm, that's not my area. Why would I write that book? So I just love that God allowed that to unfold in your life where he used something that did feel comfortable like i know how to write prayer briefs and then as you keep moving you realize wait a second this is turning into something else entirely so i had a feeling when i was in prayer about today's episode all i kept hearing was scavenger hunt so like the top of my notes was something about your journey has been like a scavenger hunt and that it was resonant with a lot of the way the lord's walked with me so how how is it that you ended up landing on the truth of kind of the Gen 6 Nephilim agenda? Because I do see that a lot of Christians seem to miss or overlook or generalize some of that information. How did the Lord specifically highlight that piece of it to you? And how did that then inform where you would take some of your work in those years after 
after the word came alive? Well, I remember distinctly listening to a podcast, uh, Rob Skiba, uh, and he was interviewing another intercessor named Timothy Bentz, and he was talking about Jekyll Island. Now, at that point in time, I don't, I had, I did not know that the Lord was asking me to write a book. So this would have been probably in 2016. Uh, I listened to that podcast and you know how we listen to things as we exercise or do housework. Mm -hmm. Well, I was on my treadmill and listening to this podcast and I was fascinated by it because, um, you know, I was already drawn to Jekyll Island, the birthplace of the federal reserve, because I had written this spiritual mapping prayer brief and here was this intercessor talking about how the Lord led him very much like a scavenger hunt to Jekyll Island and just began to uncover some of the roots of what's happened in this land. And so it really piqued my interest as far as spiritual mapping and then also, uh, you know, just the Federal Reserve. But one of the things that Timothy Bentz started talking about were, you know, he, he saw things on this island that um, were suggestive of the, the, the Timuquans, the native tribe that lived on Jekyll Island, may have had Nephilim genes or may have been giants. Mm. Now, when he mentioned that, it wasn't, it wasn't that it was a foreign concept to me, but I'm like, Nephilim, what, you know, what is that? Is that from Genesis six? And, you know, I'm exercising, I've got, I always have a ton of projects going on because I've got this naturally inquisitive mind. So I'm done exercising and the Holy Spirit just tells me, I'm going to bring you back to this. And so I'm like, okay, so it's not exactly for now. So I'm off to my next project, you know, whatever I'm doing. And sure enough, you know, the, the Lord brought me back there and boy, did he bring me back there in ways, like you said, I could never have imagined. And, you know, I, I echo what you said earlier that, you know, if the Lord were to unfold his plans and purposes for our life, we'd be like, um, no, I, I definitely <laughs> can't do that. <laughs> But it's just those little nudges. And I've learned over the years to pay attention to those nudges. And they can be like the slightest little hint of a thought that I know is not my own thought. And I'm like, okay, I need to make note of that. And I journal like crazy. um, And so thankfully, I can look through my journals and remember things that the Lord has spoken. And it's, it's so amazing how he connects all the dots. It is. And I think that is even more what brings about the adventure or excitement element and keeps you sharp. And in that Sunday service, that's what I was trying to get through to a lot of the parents is like, if your kids knew this side of walking with the Lord, maybe they would press more into their walk with him, right? Like if you could show them what really walking with the Holy Spirit was going to look like and share some of these experiences. But I find people are they like their control. They want to know what comes next and they want their they want their walk in church or with God to look a certain way and be all buttoned up. And that's not the Lord that I've ever walked with. So whenever people talk to me about that, I, I, I feel like there's just so much more fullness that people have to capture that they're just, they're missing by wanting their life to be white picket fence and redundant really. Because that Every time I know my husband, who's in the other room as the producer, walking in our life with the Lord, 
certainly pushes somebody that desires control out of their comfort zone a lot because you have to be obedient. And some, I would say sometimes and often when you get those nudges or whispers, they're not always at a convenient time, right? Like I'm sure there have been times that you've been focused on a project where God's all of a sudden guiding your attention to a completely different project, kind of like guiding a horse by the bridle and just saying like, nope, we're going over here. So has that happened to you where you've been kind of, you thought you were focused on something and God just immediately yeah. shifted your oh, focus? For sure. For sure. <laughs> right. And you have to be willing to, I think that's why we have to die to self, right? Is that ultimately you, you can't be so focused on what you are trying to do for yourself that you're willing to tell God to wait. And I think a lot of times people want Holy Spirit to wait for them. And that's not how all of this works. Um, <laughs> so in this experience of, of having the Nephilim highlighted, how much, if any, cognitive dissonance did you have to move through to really fully capture what Nephilim actually meant and what was kind of behind that doorway, proverbially speaking? Well, you know, quite a bit, actually. And as I wrote the book, um, you know, one of the things that I was struck by is, um, okay, Lord, what what are you unfolding before me? Um, and at the time I started writing the book, I didn't think Nephilim currently existed. Mm. They were giants from, you know, antiquity. But what I discovered is no, actually they're alive today. And that was a huge paradigm shift for me. And thankfully, you know, I've had these experiences in my life where I'm just, you know, walking through life with the Lord. And then all of a sudden he either will drop revelation in my lap that I'm just like blown away by and recognize, okay, if, if I'm to hold this revelation, I, I need a framework by which to understand it. And I realize that my current framework does not explain what just got dropped in my lap or what I've just witnessed. Um, and so I've, I've had these times in my life where I've had to have major paradigm shifts. And so I think that in writing this book, I was a little bit more able to deal with the cognitive dissonance and recognize, okay, I need, I need a new cognitive framework for this because the framework I have is inadequate. So Holy Spirit, show me what it is you're trying to teach me. And that's one of the things that I absolutely love about the Holy Spirit is he's the teacher of all things, mm -hmm. you know? And so I'm constantly going to him and saying, help, like help me understand what you're trying to show me. And he's so faithful that way. Absolutely. And I often feel part of that inability to expand the framework or to feel like whatever biblical framework you've been taught in your your kind of more religious upbringing feels so limiting i've always felt that that is a plan of the enemy where it's like let christians be focused on this and this is the biblical framework and if you ask questions you are somehow doing the work of the enemy so don't ask questions stay right here i feel like as i've watched a lot of different christian communities kind of come into my life or people that have been raised with all different types of religious trauma seeing how that limited framework makes them push a lot of this truth away and actually then start to point fingers at the person trying to bring that truth into the forefront. It's heartbreaking. And I wonder, have you ever had fingers pointed at you as you're trying to allow this revelation to come forward from people that 
are kind of operating in that more restricted framework. Yes, for sure. I mean, I've both in my close circle of friends, um, but then also beyond with strangers that I don't know. And I think particularly um, there's, it seems to be a couple of um, kind of similar accusations, I guess you could say from people who don't know me. One is that they think I'm new age because I talk about spiritual mapping and I talk mm -hmm. about frequencies too um, and the healing frequencies that the Lord has. And so um, I think if, if people were to attack me, sometimes it comes through that um, stream mm -hmm. of, well, she's new age. <laughs> I've had people say I'm a money grifter, which couldn't be any further from the truth. I mean, that that's hilarious. But I think the harder thing is really, you know, I've been involved in the body of Christ and in leadership in churches um, since my husband and I were married. Um, we've been married coming up on 31 years. And, you know, we've, we've always been involved in the church, um, you know, different levels of service, youth ministry, um, spiritual mapping. I was an elder for, gosh, probably 15, 18 years in our church, different things like that. And I think it's hard when, um, those the people that you've been closest with can't see or can't receive the revelation that's coming forward and so i have i have lost some very dear friends um, some of my closest friends can't even acknowledge that i've written a book um, or the topic that i've written on and so it it comes at a cost but the lord is so good because um, while i've lost friendships and i've lost connection with people I have gained so many new friends and, and just the, the spheres of influence that he has opened for me, only he can do. Mm, and okay. he continues to amaze me. And so I just am grateful that, you know, I, I want to be that type of person that continually says yes to the Lord. And I don't always know the cost when I'm saying yes, but it's coming out of a heart of, love for him and wanting to walk in the fear of the Lord and not being afraid of what other people are going to say about me, how they're going to label me, what they're going to think about me. My audience is an audience of one and I'm only after pleasing the Lord. And so if he asks me to do something, I want to give him my yes. And man, when you do that, when we give him our yes consistently, it, it just, I couldn't have imagined having been on this road. If, if someone were to ask me three years ago, where do you think you'll be in three years? There's no way I could have come up with what I'm doing right now. So I'm grateful. So a lot of the listeners of this show, I'm sure have found themselves in similar positions where when they stand boldly in the truth, sometimes we lose family members, friends, we get attacked on the internet. I've certainly had my fair share of very public social media attack. So I'm sorry that you had to end up kind of shedding some some of those friendships my prayer is always that those people will remember who you are and the friendship that they built with you and your character and one day come back and i know that god has a very specific timing for those things so when we're looking at kind of this moment that we're in today where there is very much this kind of cancel culture very divisive society that we live in is there anything specific that you do to fortify yourself to be able to walk out this truth without kind of the fear of backlash for anyone that might be experiencing that in how they're trying to walk with the Lord? Yeah, so 
For me, um, it is time with the Lord, just developing an intimate relationship with Him. And I probably, when did I move to Salt Lake? I moved to Salt Lake in 1996. So I would say in 1997, I began um, just spending time, well, I spend the time with the Lord each day, but um, every so often I would have what I called time of listening, where I just come in stillness before the Lord. I don't have an agenda. I don't have, you know, these prayer requests that I'm offering up. I just simply want to be still and know that he's God, that, that passage in Psalm 46:10, And so um, in practicing that, the Lord just allowed my relationship with him to expand and grow in ways, again, that I couldn't have imagined. And he began to open my spiritual eyes and open my spiritual ears. And, you know, I, um, I receive visions. I hear the voice of the Lord. And so we have this ongoing um, dialogue and there's times where he'll bring me into the spiritual realm and show me things. And just recently, um, well, it was probably maybe a year and a half ago, um, he showed me that if I come into his presence, um, that the enemy can't find me there. Mm, I because love that. Because in the presence of the Lord, it's like, there's so much glory and so much like the magnificence and brightness of his glory is blinding. And so if I run into his presence and I remain there, like I said, the enemy can't find me. And another vision he gave me is um, I'm like this baby bird and I'm under the wings of the father and I just have my mouth open and I'm, I want to receive nourishment, nourishment from him. And so he's feeding me like this baby bird but then he'll give me an assignment and he'll send me out. And then I'm like the um, peregrine falcon that mm. is the fastest bird on earth. And when it dives for its um, prey, it, it I, I can't remember how fast it is, but it's incredible. <coughs> and so when he sends me on assignment, I go quickly and, and do what it is he's called me to do and then come back under his wings like that baby bird again and just receive from him. So there's things like that where he'll he'll speak to me or, or he'll show me, and then I try and live those things out. And so for me, the safest place to be is in his presence, and I could get lost in his presence because it's he's infinite, he's endless. And one of the things that I love about Revelation 4 when it talks about the four living creatures that cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And they say that over and over and over for eternity. One time the Lord said, it's because I show them a new aspect of my character. And when they see that, they're blown away and cry, holy, holy, holy. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like for me, it's this endless scavenger hunt, right? It's this treasure hunt into his presence. And when I do that, I have my strength comes from the confidence of knowing who I am in the Lord mm -hmm. and it doesn't matter what other people think. And so that allows me to speak truths and to speak. I mean, if you've heard some of my other podcast interviews, um, there are things that the Lord is revealing to me that I try and make people aware of that can be fairly dark things. Oh yeah. But I always, I know that he's called me to be a distributor of hope. And so, um, it's easy for me to distribute hope because I know he's my living hope and that's where I try and live. 
I love how that's beautiful. When you were saying the part about the speed of the falcon, it made me really think about how important obedience is and that you move quickly when God tells you to move and how many people actually falter and start to go in and try to project out all the worst case scenarios. And that is really what takes you out of God's timing for your life. And in some cases, out of that really close protection. So I think that was a great visual. I'm definitely going to be reminded of that in my walk personally. So obviously, you know, to timestamp this, it is April 13th, 2023. I feel like every time I go on social media, there's, you know, some mention of impending World War III. Other people are saying that World War III has already been happening. We've got the AI and transhumanist agenda exploding. We've got the satanic agenda really outing itself very visually, whereas three or four years ago when I was talking about it, people thought I was crazy, and now it's actually very easy to see front-facing. We also have what's happening with Russia, Ukraine, and China. So I think to kind of set the stage politically, socially, because we are a current events-based show, we're, we're in a time that feels very volatile. And I'm wondering from your perspective, the volatility that we're experiencing, how much, if any, do you feel is tied to the Nephilim agenda and how that agenda is unfolding? I think it it all is tied to the Nephilim agenda, and um, it's you know in what I do in in the book that I wrote, like I said, I, I go all the way back to the dawn of humanity, and it's important I think to for folks to recognize that what we're currently living today was started way back in Genesis three in the seed war, and so maybe what I can do is just lay out a little bit of a, a summary of how I see the Nephilim agenda and then begin to tie it to current day and what we're facing Absolutely. as far as you what's go happening for it. in Russia. Okay. So, you know, for those that aren't familiar with the Nephilim agenda, it essentially, you know, was this plan that was unleashed during the days of Noah. And it's a plan to defile the human genome through the propagation of a hybrid race. Now, the purpose of that is to overthrow God's kingdom. And, you know, as I mentioned, the origins of this go back to Genesis 3 in the seed war. And I'll read two verses, verse 14 and 15. Uh, it says, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So this essentially is talking about this seed war that began. So after the fall, God declared war between the seed of Eve, which is humanity, and the seed of Satan. So one day, Eve's seed would crush Satan. Now this was a prophetic declaration of the coming Messiah. So Satan's strategy then was to contaminate the seed of the woman by altering the genetic code of humans. And this is where the fallen sons of God become integral in Satan's strategy. And we certainly read about this in Genesis 6, but also in the extra-biblical text of the book of Enoch. And so what happens is we learn that the fallen sons of God, you know, they chose to leave their heavenly abode, and they invaded the earth realm by descending on Mount Hermon. And from there, they then lusted after the daughters of men. They took them as wives, mated with them, and then defiled the human genome through propagating this hybrid race. 
And that hybrid race is known as the Nephilim. Now, one of the things that I did in my book in chapter 13 is I felt like the Lord wanted me to develop this set of proposed criteria um, to help really advance our ability to discern the presence of Nephilim traits within individuals. And so in chapter 13 of my book, what I do is I lay out four physical traits and 19 behavioral characteristics of the Nephilim and their giant offspring. Because as I mentioned before, we cannot be deceived in thinking that the Nephilim only roamed the earth during the days of antiquity. There are Nephilim and Nephilim hosts alive today. Now, a Nephilim host is something that I coined in my book, and it represents a human who has partnered with the spiritual forces of darkness to carry out this Nephilim agenda. And these would be, you know, people that meet the criteria I set out in chapter 13. And I think, you know, many of them are the titans of global governance. You know, these are the global elites over banking, over industry, you know, the political establishment, media, big pharma, big tech. Can I and ask a brief in- clarifying question about yeah. that? Would those people know that they are hosting or are they sometimes hosting subconsciously and they don't realize that it's happening? That's a great question. I differentiate. So a Nephilim host, I think, intentionally partners with the spiritual forces of darkness. Um, And I, I think that, you know, each Nephilim host is demonized, but not every demonized person is a Nephilim host. And it has to do with intentionality. Okay. Yeah. And so, you know, one of the things that I think is important for all of us to understand is that Nephilim hosts are intent on destroying the followers of Jesus while they enslave the masses, you know, through control and domination and intimidation. And really this Nephilim agenda and the globalist agenda are after the same end goal, and that is total domination of humanity. And so as I was tracing this agenda, you know, all throughout history, what I found is that in the common era, this Nephilim agenda was, has really been perpetuated by the Khazarians. And, you know, um, now that we are experiencing the fact that Russia has invaded Ukraine, I think it really is important for us to understand who are the Khazarians, what was their role in history, because they're not found in history books. I mean, it's difficult to, to learn about them. And I think one of the pieces that's really- Do you feel that that's intentional? Yes, I do, very much so. And I think one of the pieces that's important to connect the dots is actually to understand the role that the Edomites had in the history of Khazaria. And, uh, you know, not many people think about um, how Esau could be linked to the Khazarians, but it's, um, it's, it's one of those crazy scavenger hunts that the Lord led mm-hmm. me on. <laughs> so, so with, go ahead you can go. go ahead. No, you go. I think we've got I a lot. Go for tie... it. <laughs> I wanted to tie, like I said, um, the, the link between the Edomites and the Khazarians, um, So, you know, when Esau transformed and became Edom, that actually had a significant impact on world history. And I go into this more in depth in my book, but if we look at the Hebrew word for the name Edom, it means to be red. And so Esau, you know, he was willing to trade his birthright for red lentil stew. And this choice had substantial ramifications upon his bloodline. So when Esau chose to be red, he essentially sealed this transaction that would constrict his allegiance to a particular seed, and that was the seed of Satan. 
So by choosing to be red, what he did is he filled his hands with murderous blood. He killed Nimrod and two of his men out on the fields when he should have been in the tent making the red lentil stew. Now, one of the things that is a side note, but it's an interesting piece, is that the red lentil stew was actually a traditional meal of comfort that the eldest son would make for a grieving father. So Isaac was grieving the death of Abraham. And Esau, as the firstborn son, should have been the one in the tent making the red lentil stew. But instead, he was off in the fields killing others. And that really was the genesis of the color red being linked to the Nephilim agenda. And there's two symbols that I followed all throughout history that really unfolded this Nephilim agenda. And it's the color red and the circumpunct, which is the circle with the dot. And so in understanding, okay, so here's this transformation that took place. Edom essentially constricted his allegiance to a particular seed. I need to follow the Edomites. Well, Esau had a son named Iliaphaz, and Iliaphaz had a Horite concubine named Timnah. And Timnah bore Iliaphaz's son, and they named him Amalek. Amalek means blood liquor, as in to devour someone and lick up their blood. Now, the Horites are listed in Genesis 14 among a list of tribes of giants, but it's not thought that they themselves were a tribe of giants, but more that they intermingled with the giants, meaning they spread the, the Nephilim genes. Well, so here you have the Edomites and the Horites intermingling, and so there's these Nephilim genes that are getting passed along the Edomite lineage. And we would expect then to find examples of this in the Bible. And in fact, we do. There's three Edomite men who exhibit traits of Nephilim hosts, and that's Doeg, Haman, and Herod. And so these three men, you know, they were filled with rage and hate, violence, murder, and genocide. And all of those are characteristics of the Nephilim. So I realized, okay, I need to then trace the, follow the trail of the Edomites. Well, there's two migrations that are important to understand, and this will link us to the Khazarians. So the first migration um, was when they um, migrated into Babylonian, or excuse me, they migrated north during the Babylonian captivity of 586 BC. And so when King Nebuchadnezzar, um, when he you know, took captive the Judeans, the Edomites actually cheered. It says that in scripture. And mm -hmm. true, to, true to their nature, they actually took advantage of the Jews' calamity and they took up residence in the land of Judea, in Judah. And so they lived there for many centuries. Well, then in the first century BC, the Idumean cities of Marissa and Dora were conquered by a man named John Hyrcanus. And he was the leader of the Maccabean revolt. Now, as a side note, Idumea is the Greek term for Edom. And so because at this point in history, Hellenization had happened, you know, so many of, of the world spoke Greek. Um, the Idumeans are essentially the same as the Edomites. So what John Hyrcanus did at that point in time is he gave the Idumeans an ultimatum. He said, you either convert to Judaism or you leave Judea. Well, they wanted to stay in that land, and so they converted. Well, this is the first time in recorded history you have a mass conversion to Judaism. And then what happens is there's this mixture of marriages between Idumeans and Judeans, 
And then, um, you know, it leads to the Idumeans actually having uh, power under Roman rule. You know, they were given governmental oversight of the land of Judea through the line of Herod. And so here's this, you know, this admixture of marriages and relationships, so much so that the Jewish historian Josephus, he doesn't differentiate between the Idumeans and the Judeans. Then the second migration that's important to understand happened right before the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. So you have, um, you know, this large exodus of Jews into the Caucasus region. And this diaspora of Jews is made up of, I'll, I'll go back to using the term Edomites, so Edomites and Judeans. And they settle in Khazaria, which um, was the land that is currently part of Ukraine and part of Russia. And so that's where you begin to see, okay, Khazaria or the Ukraine may have been a breeding ground for Nephilim host for centuries. And would you say, based on some of the spiritual mapping concepts you described, the bloodshed and the activities that take place on the land are almost have a compounding effect in the spirit? Would you say that's true? Yes. So do you feel like that the compounding effect spiritually on that piece of land is part of why that's such a focal point today? Absolutely, yes. And so, like I said, any time with iniquity where you have bloodshed, if that bloodshed is not dealt with through repentance, um, so like identificational repentance as Daniel did in Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, that iniquity can establish a stronghold. And what happens is it acts like a magnet almost to draw more and more bloodshed or more iniquity of a similar nature. And so if there's broken covenants, for example, um, you know, even in our land here, you know, the, the United States government, government broke every single treaty they made with Native Americans. And so we have broken covenants all over our land. Well, that can perpetuate through the generations, and then you can have broken covenants in, in marriages, um, you know, high divorce rates because of what happened in the land so many, you know, hundreds of years ago. If that never got dealt with, again, it acts like a magnet drawing that iniquity and reinforcing it. I feel like what we're talking about right now, I always describe as a hijacking of a biblical concept, which is kind of the the like law of attraction, right? So in the New Age concepts, they'll talk about the law of attraction and kind of what you believe you are, you start to bring in towards you. Really, that is kind of a twist or a counterfeit of a biblical concept, which is ultimately if you are in iniquity and you aren't repenting, you do exactly what you just said. You do start to pull that into and compound in your bloodline. So that makes perfect sense to me. And I, you know, to kind of piggyback on something you said a while ago about how people will kind of point a finger and describe you as new age, I, the same thing has certainly happened to me in my career. And when you brought up the piece about kind of the the energy and all of that, I find that people are very quick to label, like blanket label things and decide, oh, well, talking about energy or manifestation is automatically X. I find, and I, I'm curious if this has been your perspective, that often 
the new age concepts are ultimately counterfeits or twists of concepts that are absolutely biblical. Have you found that to be true in your research? Yes, very much so. And you know, the enemy is a counterfeiter. So he'll take uh, what the Lord has laid out as biblical principles, as you say, and then he'll twist it. And it's, um, it's unfortunate. I think so many people are lazy in their discernment and they don't look at the fruit in someone's life um, and they label the things that they say as new age or you know something else because they haven't taken the time to examine the fruit and it really comes down to for me what is the source like what is the source of the power that i walk in that source is jesus christ and the holy spirit and i don't i don't look to other sources to gain wisdom or knowledge or revelation i look to the lord first and foremost and i mean that that's the work that we need to do in each other's lives is look at the fruit of a person's life to understand okay what what source are they walking with um and so it it very much is i think people kind of quickly will dismiss something because um, they're unsure of it. And it's easier just to quickly dismiss it rather than to do the work of investigating further. I think that's absolutely spot on. And I do believe that God is calling a lot of people into a walk with him that are willing to do that, that don't have to butt up against a more legalistic upbringing. So I'm, I'm encouraged to see how many people that might have even been from within the new age or other other sort of spiritual belief systems that are now really coming into the Lord's presence and obediently walking with him to do some of this unfolding because I do believe that the time and place we're in right now that's exactly what he I feel like the time is ripe like this is I think there are a lot of people that are willing to step in boldly and reveal things that might ruffle feathers because I think a lot of this information clearly it ruffles feathers rightfully so because it it does make people question their entire belief system right the whole way that we look at what the United States is or what it means to be an American or even you know what why have the Khazarians been completely deleted out of our written history and and why would that be it kind of makes everybody look like a conspiracy theorist. And I think people don't want to be in that sort of seat. But I do think that that's where God's calling us boldly into right now is to to be willing to ask questions and be willing to have our paradigm shattered, right? If you If you want to feel safe and buttoned up, walking with God is going to be a rough experience for you. That's always been how it's been for me. Um, one of the things that I want to try to understand a little bit more so when we're talking about the Ukraine right now, do you believe that the people that were the Khazarians, did they spread out and arguably, I mean, I'm pretty clear that the Rothschilds, for example, would have been of Khazarian descent. Do you believe that the Ukraine, the, the Khazarians that would have lived on that land, did they have a diaspora where they actually went out to run their agenda or are they very much still focused on Ukraine? Yes, they did have a diaspora. And um, I can talk a little bit about maybe the history of Khazaria and then how okay. it ties into, like you said, the Rothschilds and then what currently is going on in Russia and you know what China, Russia and China have discovered about Ukraine. 
So um, just going a little bit back in history. So the Khazars themselves, they were these violent warlike um, people and they were from Asia. So they migrated into the north end of the Caspian Sea in the first century BC. And then they really took up residence, very quickly amassed a massive amount of land. And so the Khazarian kingdom was uh, nearly 1 million square miles. And that's, you know, um, what makes up Eastern Europe today. So including Ukraine and then parts of Russia. But again, like we've been talking about, you really can't find much in the history books. And so it helps if we can look to, you know, experts that have done the, the digging and have done the research on the Khazars. And there's two in particular, two experts that um, I look to that were incredibly helpful as I wrote my book. One of them, his name was Benjamin Friedman, and he was alive in the um, early 1900s. And he was a, a businessman from New York. He was um, a Jewish man, uh, part of the elite circles, very well connected. Mm -hmm. And he has really this unparalleled perspective because he was a Zionist operative but he walked away from Zionism in 1945. And this is what he writes about the Khazars. He says in the first century BC, <clears throat> the Khazars had invaded Eastern Europe from their homeland in Asia. They were not Semites. They were an Asiatic Mongoloid nation. In a comparatively short period, the Khazars established the largest and most powerful kingdom in Europe and it probably the wealthiest also. The Khazars were a pagan nation. The vile forms of sexual excess indulged in by the Khazars as their form of religious worship produced a degree of moral degeneracy that Khazars kings could not endure. In the 7th century, King Bulan decided to abolish the practice of phallic worship and selected the future state religion as Talmudism and now known and practiced as Judaism. So here you have this, this second mass conversion to Judaism in the Khazarian kingdom. And that'll become important. The other expert that I think was really helpful for me, his name is Matthew Johnson, and he uh, was a professor of history and political science from Penn State University and then also Mount St. Mary's University. And he specialized in Russian history and Ukrainian history, which of course made him well-versed in Khazaria. And he writes this, he says, the Khazar theory suggests that there's no connection between Israelites and Jews. Yet even if there were, the religion of the modern Jew bears no relationship whatsoever to the Israelite faith, which is vehemently condemned in the Talmud. In adopting the ethic of the Talmud, they adopted the mentality of the Pharisees, whose arrogance served as the early foundation of the Talmud. And so to understand this connection between the Talmud and the Pharisees, there's another gentleman, his name is Louis Finkelstein, and he was a prominent American Jew in the early 20th century, and he also was a Talmudic scholar. And he writes, he says, Pharisaism became Talmudism, and Talmudism became medieval rabbinism, and medieval rabbinism became modern rabbinism. So when the Jew studies the Talmud, he is actually repeating the arguments used in the Palestinian academies. And mm -hmm. so here we have the Khazarian Jews, you know, they, there's this mass conversion of them, and they were following or adhering to the pharisaical religious practices. Now, also Matthew Johnson, he provides kind of this interesting window into the trade practices that shaped the economic policies of Khazaria. And he wrote an essay, it's called The Regime, Usury, Khazaria, and the American Mass. 
And I want to read an excerpt from here because you'll begin to see how this ties together. He says, in Russian history, this usury was the role of Kazaria. Charging tolls on passing merchants was their primary form of income. Domestically, the top layer of society, mostly Jewish, extracted tribute from their conquered peoples. The Khazar Empire had a small but powerful group of Jewish bankers in Kiev as early as the 10th century. Khazaria existed as a multinational state ruled over by an oligarchy of Jewish converts. Few historians will touch this issue and with good reason. By controlling the Great Silk Road, the Khazar Jews fully seized the trade between East and West, between North and South, that is, all the trade routes passing through the Caucasus Mountains. This was the main purpose for their migration to the region, full control of the caravan routes passing through the Khazar Khanate allowed the Jews to establish a trade monopoly where they began to control the prices of imported and local goods. As a result, consumers were gouged. According to the testimony of medieval travelers, the main source of income of the Khazar Khanate, except for usury, was the slave trade. Regular raids on neighboring lands, mostly Slavic, gave the Khazars a large number of slaves which were sold all over the world. Trade in general, and the slave trade in particular, has always been the traditional source of income for the Jewish entrepreneurs and a source of super profits, which made it possible to get rich quick and further strengthen its parasitic power. And so it's interesting, you know, he talks about this parasitic power and Maybe I'll come back to that in a minute if we have time, but what, what he's essentially spelling out for us is these Khazarians, you know, they had these behavioral characteristics of Nephilim hosts. You know, they were violent without remorse. They engaged in sexual degradation. They were dishonest in their business and trade practices, and they were trafficker of humans. You know, they enslaved other people. Now, eventually what happened is the Khazar kingdom was conquered by Genghis Khan's uh, son in early 13th century, and that caused the diaspora of the Khazars. So to answer your question, what they did is they spread throughout um, Eastern Europe, and these were what became the Ashkenazi Jews. And so essentially the reign of the Khazars didn't end, it just spread. And as you mentioned, yes, the, the Rothschilds were Ashkenazi Jews, and you know, they've really arguably been the most influential Nephilim hosts in the common era. And so, you know, together with the Khazarian Mafia, the Rothschilds really have gained a foothold in all the nations across the earth um, since the mid-1700s. And you think about it, the tentacles of the House of Rothschilds actually reach into the monetary policy of 85% of the nations worldwide. But what is interesting is that Russia broke free from the tentacles of the Rothschilds. So when, um, you know, more recent history now, Russia, it's been said, um, you know, that one of the most dramatic reversals in fate in recent economic history uh, was Russia's story. So when Putin came into office as prime minister in 1999, Russia was in debt to the International Monetary Fund $16.6 billion, and Russia at the time only had $8 billion in foreign reserves. So essentially, Russia was bankrupt, um, and they owed all this money. But 
what Putin did is he aggressively went after paying off that debt um, by capitalizing on the rising prices of oil. Now, as we know, one of Russia's strongest exports is oil. And so this black commodity really helped set Russia free from the chains of enslavement. So in 2006, Russia was able to pay off the debt to the IMF. Now, the IMF is a Rothschild-controlled bank. And once Russia did that, they successfully were able to extract themselves from the stranglehold of the Rothschilds. And of course, for this heroic feat, you know, Putin has been characterized as the bad guy ever since. And we know, you know, Nephilim hosts, they are skilled at smear tactics. And I'm, I'm not saying necessarily that Putin is a saint, but we have to recognize that he stood up to the Nephilim hosts in 2006, and he's standing up to the Nephilim hosts that are ruling in Ukraine right now. And China and Russia, you know, they've uncovered that Ukraine has housed numerous U.S. biolabs. And what's interesting is, you know, before we knew that COVID-19 even existed, November 12th of 2019, the Department of Defense, they awarded a COVID-19 research contract to Labyrinth Global Health, and that was to be conducted in Ukraine. And so we see that Ukraine has been aiding the U.S. in developing these bioweapons. So it's no wonder that Russia is made out to be the bad person, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. And I think sometimes, you know, I have friends that are Ukrainian. I have friends that are Russian. People tend to only see the situation from the civilians that are getting pulled into on one side or the other, the war. And I find that that can be a really disempowering position. And I know, of course, our our human nature wants to care about friends and family that are caught in the crossfire. But I feel like we're all better served to to pull back our perspective and try to understand what's really happening, especially spiritually, because that's exactly what the enemy wants is the enemy wants us focused emotionally on the individuals rather than understanding the bigger spiritual significance of what is taking place. So given what is unfolding in the Ukraine right now, and I, I would say also maybe linking that with biblical prophecy, what what is the end goal here? Where are we moving toward? And what role, if any, does China play in what is potentially to come next? Yeah, that's, those are great questions. I think China definitely um, is, I mean, we see it all over our nation. They're trying to uh, take over our nation, you know, buying up properties, buying up countries, or excuse me, buying up companies. And certainly, um, you know, there's some question if politicians are being paid behind the scenes by China. So China is really positioning themselves to be, you know, the leader of the world. Um, and in partnering with Russia, they certainly are a formidable force. And, you know, when you think about um, BRICS, which is Brazil, Russia, India, China, and I believe South Africa, although I might have the S1 wrong, um, you know, th these are nations that have come together and are really focused on building their GDP and, you know, building the economies of their nations. Meanwhile, the G7 or the G20, you know, we're focused on things like transgenderism and, you know, all these 
these issues that really are not um, giving us a good foundation for becoming or, or staying a strong nation. And meanwhile, you know, Russia and China are partnering together in all sorts of ways. And there's the decoupling of the U.S. dollar to the petrodollar. So now countries are trading outside of the U.S. dollar. And, you know, we've been the reserve currency for a very long time. And uh, now that that is being decoupled, uh, you know, it, it doesn't bode well for the U.S. dollar moving forward. So... I want to, I'll try to spell these two thoughts out and then I'm curious to see how these align. So I've often wondered, on one hand, we know that Putin, as the the leader of Russia, has intentionally tried to separate from the Rothschild's stranglehold. And then clearly China is at least forming opportunistic allyship with Russia, I'll say, although I don't necessarily know that both sides are are always allies. I think they're they're allied in a in what's currently unfolding. I can see where the Nephilim agenda exists in both the Chinese system, right, which we know is very much focused on AI and transhumanism and removing any ability for human beings to have any sort of privacy or sovereignty. But I've never quite been able to tie directly the Nephilim agenda outside of the characteristics that you've labeled to the Chinese bloodline. I can see where that's coming through the Ukraine and through some of the diaspora that is in charge of global leadership right now. What is China? Like, what bloodline is that? And does that somehow still tie back to the serpent? And have you found it? Because that's it's the one piece that I just... I don't know. I got questions. I'm not. I'm skeptical. Yeah, um, I wouldn't say that I found necessarily the piece that you're looking for. But one of the things that I do in my book is I trace the the footprints of the giants all across the continents. And you know, there's um, there definitely were giants in China. Um, so the Tarim Basin mummies in um, I forget what province of China that is. But these were um, skeletons that are fairly well preserved and, um, you know, they are tall in stature, taller than, you know, what you would anticipate um, the Chinese people to be at that point in history. And some of them even have red hair. And, you know, I didn't discuss uh, with you today about um, just the link between red hair and um, Nephilim traits. But... There certainly suggests that there were uh, the bloodline of the Nephilim in the region that we now know as China. And also there are a number of pyramids that are covered up in China. Um, and we see pyramids all across the earth. And, and I go into that too, um, you know, linking it to the Great Pyramid. But these, these pyramids um, in China, you know, a lot of them are covered up with... Um, the natural foliage so like they've allowed grass to to um, cover them or trees or bushes or those types of things but when you look at them from the air from satellite it's very clear that there are pyramids all strewn about china and it's not uncommon um just to china i mean it's all across the the world 
But again, this would suggest that there's this link to the Nephilim agenda um, that also is in the land of China. And from your perspective, I know sometimes people will hear the world, the word, the great builder race. In your mind, is the reference to the great builder race the same as the Nephilim? Would they be one and the same group of people? I actually haven't heard the term the great builder race, so I'm not entirely sure what you're referring to. But as far so as So I like, think it's kind of more like, the like the alien the alien, ancient alien sort of grouping. Okay. They'll often refer to them as essentially the group that would have had the ability to construct these things that clearly far sure. surpasses what we're able to do. Um Yes. Yeah, the great builder race, I think, is what they typically call them. So is it your position that the Nephilim would have been the ones that would have been able to construct these pyramids? I Yes, and um, the knowledge that the Nephilim carried and passed down through the um, generations, yes. I think there was um, ancient technology that far exceeds our current technology. And some of that, you know, may have involved sound frequencies, being mm -hmm. able to move things with sound, um, you know, because you look at some of these megalithic monuments and the size of the, the stones themselves are, you know, massive. And, and you think about how could physical human beings move these? Um, and so it really, you know, raises a lot of questions. And that's one of the things that I do in my book as well, as I look at these megalithic monuments um, across the world and really kind of raise the question of, okay, humans could not have been capable of doing this type of construction with, with the recorded history of technology that we have. Their humans could do it with ancient technology that has is no longer available in history books. And so that's some of, um, I believe, what the Nephilim agenda is about is I think they're so far beyond in technology than what we know. Um, and, and this kind of taps into uh, understanding the fact that there are Nephilim alive today, which, again, is very hard for people to wrap their minds around it and it was say and after well. though right i think people forget the and after right they just they're like that's inconvenient so we're just gonna pretend that it doesn't say and after because it right, right it, it makes you question your reality right right and you know one of the things that we started our conversation talking about is you know when you say yes to the lord and you follow the lead of where he's taking you I'll take you on this grand adventure. And, you know, when I wrote this book, I had no idea that he would open up the doors for me in the realm of developing friendships and connections with people coming out of satanic ritual abuse. And in doing that, the Lord has brought people to me, numerous people, so not just one person, but numerous people that don't know each other that have encountered Nephilim. And that's when my paradigm had to shift. I mean, I, I sensed that there was these, that these Nephilim hosts, but the fact that currently there are Nephilim alive today um, was a shift in paradigm for me. And, and that's, you know, it, it really um, shows us that this Nephilim agenda wasn't just during the days of antiquity. They are trying to defile our human gen genome. They want to turn us into hybrids. 
And in order to do that, they've got to hijack our mind first. And that's why you see all of this fear that's being rolled out because fear is one of the main drivers of mind control. Mm -hmm. And if these Nephilim hosts can keep the masses stuck in a state of fear, then we don't use rational thinking or critical thinking skills. And they can lead us wherever they want us um, to go. And I think that's what's been busy happening. Absolutely agree with you. So I wanted to bring up something that we were working through in a recent conference that we held here. And I feel like God took me so far and then I was left with some questions at the end. So I guess I'm curious if potentially you've been given any insight on this. So when I was preparing for a conference that I led last October, as I'm sure you've had happen before, it started off as kind of a whisper and then it wouldn't go away. And I realized, okay, I need to write this down where I just kept hearing Japheth, Japheth. And at a certain point I was like, okay, I'm going to write it down. I didn't think that it was relevant to what I was bringing through over the conference, but it ended up actually being everything. So Holy Spirit had me essentially map from Japheth to everything that's unfolding right now and one of the things I had gone through all of the different bloodlines and I can I'll send you a screenshot when we're done with this to kind of show you my map one of the questions that I ended up having after I had mapped out where each of these bloodlines ended up essentially terminating at this point in humanity was why and this is probably a loaded question and you're not prepared for it most likely but I'm just gonna throw it out there why do you think Hitler specifically targeted a group that would have been primarily Ashkenazi Jews? And do you think that ultimately why he was targeting them is still partly tied into this Nephilim human genome defiling? Great question. So I think um, that Hitler, I mean, Hitler was part of this Nephilim agenda. I think he was um, not necessarily operating exactly how he was told, but there were definitely elites above him that were controlling Hitler. And, you know, if you think about this Nephilim agenda being played forward and the different bloodlines, a lot of times they want to throw us off course and um, get us focused on the wrong thing. Well, Hitler was, you know, not only was he um, killing Jews, but he was slaughtering millions of people, not just the Jews, but certainly mm -hmm. a large portion of those were the Jews. And what he was busy doing was he was building this trauma-based mind control program that was run through Joseph Mengele, you know, one mm -hmm. of his Nazi scientists who also was a sorcerer. And so what I believe was happening, kind of like the slaughtering of all the Jews and the millions of people um, was what we were supposed to see out in the forefront mm -hmm. so that what he was doing behind all that was the real mission. Okay. Um, but he needed all that bloodshed to, to be able to, to get the power. And mm -hmm. so, um, he, and this kind of ties into what I was just speaking about with satanic ritual abuse. Um, some of the folks the Lord has brought um, into my life. And, and I have a dear friend, um, from South Africa. Her name is, well, she goes by L it's not her real name. 
and um, she is part of the royal bloodline and she's an overcomer of satanic ritual abuse well um, she's taught me a lot about this Hitler project as have other um, people that minister to to folks coming out of SRA and so this Hitler project began in 1944 and as I mentioned it was a trauma-based mind control program and what Hitler was trying to do is he was trying to create a satanic bloodline through the convergence of the 13 royal bloodlines. And so what Hitler and Mengele did is they essentially set the stage for what's called a multiple incursion. So another time in history where you have the mating of a spiritual being with a human being. And so what happened is there was this conception ritual and with the conception ritual, the, the daughters born from this conception ritual were hand-selected to birth Nephilim. And so what this conception ritual was is you have, um, you know, at least one royal monarchy, um, and then you have another person. They come together for a pre-planned conception event. At the same time, all across the earth, you have rituals involving blood sacrifices. And the reason for that is all of that iniquity force converging at the moment of conception. So it's all synchronized so that there's this interplay with the spiritual forces of darkness during that conception. And what I've learned is that the, the daughters, the, the children born as a result of that conception ritual are said to have a triple helix DNA. So the third strand of their DNA is in the spiritual realm. Now, what happens is when they're birthed um, as a result of this conception ritual, they're birthed right into the Luciferian occult, and they are ritualistically abused from the point of birth. And that trauma leads to dissociation and multiple personalities. Now, what happens, too, is that, um, you know, these... These women, these children, I should say, that were born as a part of this Hitler project, when they, these girls, when they turn age 12 and 13, there are rituals that are involving um, Satan taking on human form and raping them. And when that happens, because they have that third strand of the DNA linked to the spiritual realm, they're able to conceive Nephilim. And so my friend Elle has birthed Nephilim, she's birthed hybrids, and she's birthed humans. So Nephilim, like I said, are birthed as a result of being raped by Satan because they're the direct seed of Satan. Hybrids are birthed as a result of being raped by Nephilim. And, you know, not only my friend Elle, but there are many other survivors. Again, they haven't talked to each other. It's, it's a little bit like people who have been abducted by UFOs all kind of have similar stories. This is where it my paradigm had to shift um, because I didn't have a paradigm for any of this. I mean, in graduate school, I, was, I had one course in multiple personality disorder, and that was the extent of it. But I've never worked with clinically people that have dissociative identity disorder. I know it exists, but I didn't realize the satanic ritual abuse realm. And so that's really opened my eyes. So back to your question, um, there is 
you know, Hitler was very much involved in creating this satanic bloodline. And, you know, if you look at scripture and revelation, it talks about the beast or the antichrist um, is going to be a hybrid. And that's what I've learned from these overcomers of satanic ritual abuse that are high level, you know, from these royal bloodlines is that Satan has been busy birthing the antichrist. He doesn't know when Jesus is going to return. No one knows that. But he's had an antichrist ready. And so these Nephilim are birthed and, you know, many of them uh, are underground at Mount Hermon, um, Area 51, Antarctica, New Schwanstein. And when also you shared about the, the UN base on the top of Mount Hermon, <laughs> that was pretty mind-blowing. Because it just, the way that you, and I'll, if you wanted to add a little bit about kind of what that is, because I think sometimes people hear this stuff and they're like, wait, whoa, you guys just took a sharp left. I was following you and now we're talking about Satan <laughs> raping people and birthing hybrids. So listen, if all of a sudden you feel like we just took a sharp left, that's what we do on this show. What, what can you tell the audience about this UN base on Mount Hermon? Because to me, that was one of the biggest kind of evidence drops that shows that even though it sounds completely crazy, these government agencies are very much aware of the spiritual mapping pieces, even if the general population is completely blind to it. So can you share a little bit about that piece? Because to me, it made that whole narrative come together beautifully. Yeah, so Mount Hermon, um, as I talked about earlier, that was essentially the birthplace or ground zero for the Nephilim agenda. That's where the fallen sons of God descended. And from that point, um, you, you know, we have these epic battles in the seed war all throughout history. Well, I believe um, that Jesus in his transfiguration, that that actually happened on Mount Hermon. Um, because in scripture, it talks about uh, Matthew and Mark talk about this high mountain that the, the transfiguration takes place at. And in scripture, right before the transfiguration, they're at Caesarea Philippi, which is at the base of Mount Hermon. Caesarea Philippi is about 1,100 feet in elevation. It's on this rocky ledge. And, um, you know, this is where, you know, Jesus says the gates of Hades will not be able to prevail against the church. And he makes these incredible um, declarations. Well, six days later, he transfigures. And as I mentioned, Matthew and Mark say that takes place on a high mountain. Well, Mount Hermon, which is they were at the base of Mount Hermon in Caesarea Philippi. Mount Hermon is 9,232 feet high, the highest peak. It's really a cluster of mountains with three distinct peaks. But throughout Christian tradition, um, because of in the fourth century AD, Cyril of Jerusalem, and then also uh, Jerome, his predecessor, they mention in passing that the mountain of transfiguration was Mount Tabor. And this Mount Tabor was like something like 86 kilometers away or 89 kilometers away from Caesarea Philippi. And it's only 1,866 feet in elevation, which means it's not a very high mountain. And so it's unlikely that that was the mountain of transfiguration. But unfortunately, because they said that in passing, they didn't provide any conclusive evidence as to why they determined that, that has been cemented in the belief of Christian tradition 
that this is the mountain of transfiguration, Mount Tabor. And so they've set up pilgrimages and they would set up places of worship to go worship on Mount Tabor, which is great for that territory, but it is but it's not the wrong Mount place Zero. for spiritual mapping. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so um, what happened is, you know, these, these spiritual forces of darkness, they were able to summon false worshipers to Mount Hermon um, after that transfiguration. Cause when Jesus transfigured on the, on Mount Hermon, he was declaring to the powers of darkness that the triune nature was serving them notice. Mm-hmm. I believe he redeemed reestablished kingdom order on Mount Hermon for his transfiguration. But what happened in that fourth century and after is because Christians were led astray to the wrong location, the enemy just drew false worshipers to Mount Hermon. And so then you get in the current day, um, you know, there's this peace treaty between Syria and Israel. And when that happens, the UN decides to set up a base at the summit of Mount Hermon. And this is the very location where the fallen sons of God descended upon. And so it's incredibly strategic. And that's the thing that I, like yourself, I'm trying to awaken Christians to understand is locations and what happens on the land is so very important. And we have to cleanse the land if there's defilement, because if we don't, the enemy encroaches and he'll take it for his kingdom and then set up strongholds that keep people locked in a certain mindset. And so here you have um, at the base, you have a UN or excuse me, at the summit, you have a UN base, but underground currently you have Nephilim operating within the mountain of Mount Hermon. And this is where they do high level occult rituals. And this is where um, for my friend L, she was raped by Satan at Mount Hermon. Um, and so here are these places um, that, and also under the Temple Mount in Jerusalem is a very significant place of darkness. So for those of you listening, and I know that obviously our listeners have known me for a while, and I've never disclosed this, but I will say when I when I listened to the episode where you interviewed L, or well, I guess L was being interviewed alongside you more specifically, it matched exactly what a client had disclosed to me in about four years ago. I had a client who was raised up in satanic ritual abuse and had been that had been happening to her to her ability to recall detail. She could even remember what type of chips her dad would get her on the way to the place where she would consistently be satanic ritually abused her whole childhood. And she, in very specific detail, told me how in her 20s she was specifically raped by satan to bear a child that was his offspring and the way she described it to me at the time i obviously was listening and was there for her and was helping her process but i had a lot of questions i was like this sounds i mean the level of detail that she could recall and how her body language and voice tone was while recalling made it very clear that this felt very real to her. But I had questions at that time, quite literally until I heard Elle's testimony, it was an exact match. So for me, it was a really profound moment of really a hundred percent coming into the belief that this actually had happened to this person. So for those of you that know me and 
also trust my experience. I've had the same I've had the same experience and Dr. Laura, I know you don't know this about me, but I was raised Jewish. I my dad is very much involved in Zionist activities. That's as far as I'll go to say it on this podcast. Um for me being able to come into and through all this stuff it was a lot of cognitive dissonance. Even coming to Jesus when I was 19, being raised very Jewish, I mean, that's something that you just don't do when you're a Jew. And there's a lot of pushback in my family. And even having to go through these steps of like, I'm an Ashkenazi Jew. Oh, wait. <laughs> the, having to actually allow the Khazarian history to really unfold and understand the implications of that. It's a lot of it's a lot of different moments of cognitive dissonance to move through. So I want to encourage our listeners, if anything that you've heard, you're like, I could handle it up until this point, but I can't handle that. Just listen to what Dr. Laura is sharing. Listen to the sincerity in her voice and her expertise. It's it's hard to put into your existing paradigm, but it is absolutely necessary in this moment to have these conversations because I believe what we're seeing unfold it seems exponential to me how willing Satan is to very for like just unveil his agenda very visually. So I feel like for those of you that feel like what she shared might be too much or it's made you want to stop listening to the episode, actually keep going because what we're about to see unfold, you have to understand these pieces to understand where this is going. Would you agree with that? Do you have any words to encourage people to press in a little bit more and get through the cognitive dissonance to understand that yes people can actually be raped by satan yeah well I, first of all i appreciate you sharing what you did um because that's that's helpful to me as well to to hear that there are others who have a very similar testimony to l um i you know my encouragement to folks again i never could imagine being where I'm at right now and having relationships and friendships with folks that have experienced torture that I can't even comprehend. Um, but I consider it a gift from the Lord that he's opened up these friendships. And part of it I know is that he wants to teach me what is happening so that we can, we can love these folks. Now, one of the things that I don't have it in front of me, but I read an, um, a poem that some uh, another survivor had written on that episode where Elle was on there. And I I couldn't get through it without crying. Because I started crying when I listened to you read it. Yeah, it, it rocked me because what happens is when we have cognitive dissonance, it's easy to just dismiss what somebody is saying as false or they're lying or... This can't possibly be because it's hard work to work through the dissonance. But I want to encourage people that the Lord wants to bring forth what has been hidden in the shadows. And not just for the sake of exposing, but for the sake of setting people free. free. And I believe there is this, there's like this groundswell of, I call them overcomers because they are overcoming so much. But there's this groundswell of people coming out of satanic ritual abuse, and they need us to be there to listen to them, to support them. We don't have to know how to fix them. That is way too much to put on our shoulders, but we are called to love them and to be in connection with them and friendship with them. 
And I have learned so much from my friendship with Elle. I'm a different person because of her. And as dark as this material is, I never lose sight of the fact that Jesus is our living hope, which means we are never without hope. And I look at, you know, these overcomers lives and what they are busy overcoming. Jesus relentlessly is pursuing them and setting them free and integrating their personalities. And, you know, it's a long road. Um, it doesn't happen overnight, but Jesus is there with them and, you know, meets them in the midst of their pain. And so for us who have never gone through something like that, it's encouraging because we know there's no pit that we can fall in that's too deep that the long arm of the Lord can't reach in and rescue us. Mm -hmm. And so that's my encouragement to folks is to sit with the cognitive dissonance. Don't run away from it because the Lord may want to use you in ways that you can't even imagine right now. And when you say yes to the Lord, man, he equips you with what you need to be his hands and feet to those around. I love that. That's so beautiful. And I know that our audience, our audience can handle this. I just want to give words of encouragement. You can handle this. You've got this. Even if it feels uncomfortable, even if you want to run away or shut it down, you've got this. And I would say because I can see people potentially making this mistake, go into prayer about it. Go sit with the Lord on this one rather than go take to Google. You know, like some people want to handle their problems by Google researching. I don't feel like this is a Google researching solution. This is a leaning into your walk with the Lord to figure out your next steps. I know that a lot of people, when I, I did something that I refer to as the secret podcast, um, during COVID, it was kind of an underground podcast so that I didn't get fully canceled. And in a lot of that, we uncovered some aspects of the satanic agenda that are very hard to stomach. And a lot of people made the mistake of trying to go into a Google rabbit hole and you end up getting, I would say, bombarded with visual content that might be really hard for you to heal from. And I don't believe that is what God is asking each of us to do. We all have a different way that God wants to use our understanding of this information. That doesn't mean that he wants you to be overwhelmed with very triggering visual information so that you're, you know, in timeout for three months crying. I don't believe that's what God's calling us to do here. But I think, like you said, it is to show up without judgment and not in fear to help usher these people into that overcoming experience because a lot of people and i in that poem i think one of the the lines was um you know i'm in your church would you even know me these people are all around you i've met at least 200 in my career that have been part of satanic ritual abuse or some sort of mind control torture programming they are out there they are in your schools they go to school with your kids they are in your church they are everywhere and they've been able to stay hidden for so long because we refuse to expand our paradigm right we're so stuck in this legalistic biblical perspective that we're not taking into account things that are very clearly in the bible god wants us to fully open up our eyes and perspective to see what's unfolding and i do believe the time is now, right? God wants us eyes open, ready to be obedient to do what he's asking us to do. So I quite literally could ask you a million more questions and I will save them for a future episode because I I love the way 
I love the way your mind works, and I also really appreciate the way God uses the way your mind works for his good. And I find, you know, a lot of people will come to me like, busy, you're so smart. I'm like, all I am is obedient to what God is asking me to do. And I'm, he's just using the skill set that he's developed in me. It's not me. So I love seeing that in other people that are willing to go into the dark places and go into the places that might put some serious heat on them all in the interest of obediently serving God. So I want to make sure that people know first and foremost where to find your book. Where's the best place for people to find the book that we've been talking about through the Federal Reserve because I feel like people are going to want to buy this book. So you can buy it on Amazon. Um, it's also available now in Audible, so audiobook. Um, I narrated it, and that was so much harder than I even imagined. But my publisher worked really hard on editing, and we just, um, I think within the last three weeks, it's now available in audio. Uh, we also are working on a Spanish version of this book. Um, there are some um, pastors in Miami that uh, have graciously paid to have it translated into Spanish. And so I am thrilled with that. We're working on that. Um, a good place to find me is my website as well. It's no longer enslaved.com. And then I have a YouTube and rumble channel. So if folks are interested in learning more about spiritual mapping. I have a seven part series on um, both those channels called transformation through uh, spiritual mapping. And uh, my channels, the names are no longer enslaved. So that's both for YouTube and Rumble. I also have a 10-part series on the impact of the Nephilim agenda, if people want to watch that. That's kind of the next step for folks, um, is understanding how this Nephilim agenda impacts us today. And certainly my book is The Deep Dive. Amazing. I want to make sure we end with a couple of rapid-fire questions. So are you ready to go? I guess, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Who's your favorite biblical character and why? Joshua, and because he was the original spiritual mapper. Oh, I like that. What's the most important lesson you learned as a child? As a child, did you say? Mm -hmm. um, I Probably the most impactful thing I've learned um, was from my grandmother. She was a prophetic intercessor, and I used to spend... Um, weekends with my grandparents and um, I would wake up early and go into her bathroom you know just because you wake up you have to go to the bathroom and there was a laundry chute that would um, go down into the basement and I could hear my grandmother praying in the basement because she would pray for hours um, each morning in the basement and I would lay on the floor and lift up that laundry chute lid and just listen to her. And she'd be praying in tongues. She would be interceding, be crying out. And that made a huge impact on my life. And that's why I'm the intercessor I am today because of that. I love that. What's the biggest mistake you made in your life and what did it teach you? Oh... Uh the biggest mistake. I've made so many. Um, I think I think the biggest mistake would be operating under a spirit of control. Um, because it affected, I tell my story of deliverance um, on other podcasts, but I've been delivered from a spirit of fear of death and a spirit of fear of failure and a fairly um, 
powerful way in that I also was healed at the same time of a heart murmur that I had since a child. So it was pretty incredible deliverance. Um, and then years later, I was also delivered from a spirit of control. And I would say that that impacted my relationships operating in, under control um, more so than the fear of death, fear of failure. And so I look back now and I, I can see how um, who I was as a mom even, how I would try and control what my kids would do, how I would try and control my husband. I was in youth ministry at the time, how I would try and control the direction of the youth ministry. And when I got set free from that, it was just in the midst of worship, um, I heard this like loud snap. <laughs> And I kind of looked around, I was like, what just happened? And the Holy Spirit said, you just got delivered from spirit of control. Because I had been working through those issues and praying through things. I had to learn how to be a different person. Like It felt like I had to learn even how to breathe differently. Because everything I did was under the spirit of control. Really a Jezebel spirit. Hmm. And so that, for me... I mean, it was, it's generational um, in my bloodline, but I opened a door to it because of how I chose to act. And so I think that would be, it's not like one mistake. It's like years of mistake living under that. Yeah, more of a theme, a theme of mistake. I love that. Right. Well, it was an absolute honor to have you on the show. You are such a wealth of knowledge, and I'm so grateful that you have been following God's scavenger hunt for you, and you've been able to uncover everything that you have. And we would love to have you back on the show. So we're wishing you the best of luck in all of your future endeavors and hope that we get to spend some more time with you soon and keep building on. I know our listeners are lifelong learners everyone's here to really go somewhere with the information people here don't really like little bits of vanilla information we like to go deep so thank you for giving us all this really great depth on the nephilim agenda um for any of you that are listening that want to go follow dr laura we will make sure to put all of her information on the show notes on our website that's going to be at busygold.com also a lot of the information that we talked about works alongside also the biomechanics of deliverance which is also on busygold.com make sure to follow dr laura sanger and we will see you next time thank you so much everybody